And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover and Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book, a celebration of the written word and the arts. Today we bring you the story of three writers and teachers as they talk about their tribal traditions, how their tribal traditions influence their work. The following has been produced by What's the Word? It tells the story of Ophelia Zepeda, winner of the 1999 MacArthur Fellowship, and shares the poetry that she writes both in English and in her tribal language, Odom. Robert Warrior takes us back to the 19th century for a look at the written 1881 Constitution of the Osage Nation and the oral version of the nation's origins. And Jean Browning reads and talks about writing from her tribe, the Hara, in Alaska. Stay tuned. This piece starts out in O'odham, and then we move into English, of course. The description of calling upon all these different things is actually part of O'odham ritual in the summertime. They wanted it to be a document that would not be in opposition to the other version of our constitution as a people that I think is embedded within our story of Osage emergence and Osage origins. Well, since the 70s, of course, there's been a resurgence in Native literatures, the study of Native literature. But I think Alaska Native writing hasn't been as visible. In 1969, pioneer N. Scott Mamaday won the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, House Made of Dawn. With his 1969 book, The Way to Rainy Mountain, about Kiowa history and traditions, he showed how a writer could bring an oral literary tradition to the printed page. Following this, the 1970s marked an important decade in the development of American Indian and Alaska Native literature. People wrote both in English and in their tribal languages. Fiction, poetry, songs, essays and news articles form a body of work that reflects tribal tales and traditions as well as issues of concern to the American Indian and Alaska Native communities. I'm Sally Plaxon. On this edition of What's the Word, three writers and teachers talk about how their tribal traditions influence their work. Ophelia Cepeda, winner of a 1999 MacArthur Fellowship, shares the poetry that she writes both in English and her tribal language, O'odham. Robert Warrior takes us back to the 19th century for a look at the written 1881 Constitution of the Osage Nation and the oral version of the nation's origins, both founding statements of his people. And Jean Breinig reads and talks about writings from her tribe, the Haida in Alaska. 
Join us on this edition of What's the Word? American Indian and Alaska Native Tribal Traditions. <laughs> Ophelia Cepeda is reading from her poem, O'Odam Dances, written in the language of her tribe, O'Odam. I'm a native of Arizona. I'm a tribal person. My tribal affiliation is called Tohonna O'Odam, and the tribe is formerly known as Papago here in southern Arizona, and our um, community is here in the southern part of the state. In fact, Tucson, Chukshon, is one of our indigenous territories, I guess I can say. Cepeda teaches courses in linguistics and American Indian studies at the University of Arizona. She's the author of two books of poetry, Ocean Power, Poems from the Desert, and Earth Movements, or Juet Ihoi, a bilingual collection in English and O'odam that also includes a CD of Cepeda reading. She first began to write in O'odam in the 1980s, and her poetry is her way of sharing the culture of her tribe and of showing how the language can be used as a contemporary creative medium. One poem is called O'odam Dances. It, of course, deals with the place that we live as a tribe and also the importance of rain to the people and to this particular landscape. The landscape is the Sonoran Desert where her tribe tells times of the day and seasons of the year by looking at the sky, and where the weather, floods, black clouds, wind, and morning air, is central both to Cepeda's life as a Tohono O'odham woman and to her poetry. Cepeda reads O'odham Dances. <laughs> It is time for the ritual to dance, to sing, so that rain may come so that the earth may be fixed one more time. Throughout the night, a night too short for such important work, the people converge energies. They call upon the night, they call upon the stars in the darkness, they call upon the hot breezes, they call upon the heat coming off the earth. They implore all animals, the ones that fly in the sky, the ones that crawl upon the earth, the ones that walk, the ones that swim in the water, and the ones that move in between water, sky, and earth. They implore them to focus on the moisture. All are dependent. From the dark dryness of the desert, on that one night the call of the people is heard. It is heard by the oceans, winds, and clouds. All respond sympathetically. Throughout the night, you hear the one who is assigned yelling, Oigo, oigo, before it becomes light. Oigo, oigo, there are still songs to be sung. Oigo, oigo, 
before the sun comes up. Oigo, oigo, there is still a little bit of night left. With the dawn, we face the sunrise. We face it with all our humility. We are mere beings. All we can do is extend our hands towards the first light. In our hands, we capture the first light. We take it and cleanse ourselves. We touch our eyes with it. We touch our faces with it. We touch our hair with it. We touch our limbs. We rub our hands together. We want to keep this light with us. We are complete with this light. This is the way we begin and end things. The poem contains many references specific to the Oodam people. Of course, the most obvious is the language. This piece starts out in Oodam, and then we move into English, of course. The description of calling upon all these different things is actually part of Oodam ritual in the summertime. In the summer, Oodam still participate in ritual in what they call pulling down the clouds, which is what, I guess, becomes commercialized as rainmaking, even though we don't call it that. But this is what is involved, not just bringing down rain, but also what I termed here as fixing the earth so that the earth may be fixed one more time. And so they do it every year to sort of set things right. The poem Ocean Power is about Cepeda's family, but it's also about the culture and practices of her tribe. We're one of the few tribes that's never been um, relocated or forced to move like so many other tribes, and so we've been here for a long time. And our reservation pretty much consists of a large part of the indigenous lands, including some parts in Mexico, and the border just sort of artificial for many people. And so people cross back and forth, sometimes freely and sometimes not so freely. Part of the poem is about the perils of crossing the border from Mexico to do wage labor in Arizona. But the other part, though, of the poem is about the land that people travel when they move south, because even though it's desert, it's sort of different types of desert, and if you're indigenous to this place, you acknowledge that difference. When they traveled all the way south, the Oodam reached the ocean. People would go down there primarily for collecting salt, which you need when you live here in a dry climate. But also salt was important as part of ritual events. And making the pilgrimage to the ocean was an important role for other rituals throughout the year. And so the poem kind of concludes with those events of going to the ocean and asking for things. As a child, Zepeda heard the stories of her grandparents' journey to the ocean by foot and then by horse. She weaves her memory of these stories into a contemporary poem. In the second half of the poem, she writes about the men making the journey and not feeling prepared for it. We are not ready to be here. We are not prepared in the old way. We have no medicine. We have not sat and had our minds walk through the image of coming to this ocean. We are not ready. We have not put our minds to what it is we want to give to the ocean. 
We do not have cornmeal, feathers, nor do we have songs and prayers ready. We have not thought what gifts we will ask from the ocean. Should we ask to be song chasers? Should we ask to be rain makers? Should we ask to be good runners? Or should we ask to be heartbreakers? No, we are not ready to be here at this ocean. The reference about not being ready, for me at least, it's about these men that did come too close to the ocean and sort of in a way saying that all them people don't or shouldn't go to the ocean without preparation because that's the way it used to be. They prepared for a long time before they made the trip to the ocean. Being prepared means in part bringing a token gift, perhaps some food, to the ocean. Those four lines at the end about asking for these particular gifts, because it is appropriate to ask for gifts. If you give a gift, you can ask for something in return. And it's usually um, some special feature that you can ask for. To be song chasers, a lot of people still now dream songs, create songs, which is anyone who has that particular ability or talent is certainly held in high regard. And this was true traditionally. So it's something that you might want to aspire to. And in order to do that, you kind of ask for favors from different things or different people and they help you along. And so a person could ask for this from the ocean because it is that powerful that it might say perhaps enable a person a vision or inspiration, basically, which is what a lot of songs evolve out of. I'm Sally Paxson, and you're listening to What's the Word? I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, which is along the river. It's in the traditional homelands of the Osages. And I think that growing up there really does shape my perspective there in our homelands. I grew up about 150 miles from our reservation center in Pahuska, Oklahoma. Robert Warrior teaches in the English department and the American Indian program at Cornell University. He's the author of Tribal Secrets, Recovering American Indian Intellectual Traditions, and co-author with Comanche writer Paul Chat Smith of Like a Hurricane, the Indian movement from Alcatraz to Wounded Knee. We purchased that reservation from the Cherokees in 1870, and we moved from a reservation in Kansas, not very far from Wichita, where I grew up, down to the reservation in Oklahoma, and that was our final move as Osage people to our final reservation home, and we've been living there now for 128 years. The first 10 years of living on the reservation, says Warrior, were extremely difficult. The United States government did not honor its treaty with the Osage Nation regarding the delivery of food and supplies. The Osage were also forced to live without the buffalo hunt and the horticultural practices they had developed over centuries in the Ozarks. Warriors' ancestors were on the reservation during this time. It's my great-great-grandmother, Paputsonsa, or Grandma Big Eagle, who died around the turn of the century she lived through this time and it's part of what connects me to this work is trying to imagine what those first 10 years would have been like for her and other people in our tribe after about 10 years of living under these conditions the osage nation was divided 
Some felt the Osage needed to go back to their oldest and deepest traditions and rely chiefly on them. These are people I would call cultural nationalists. And then the other group of people who were slightly more flexible who said, you know, we need to modernize and we need to innovate within the limits of our new life here on this reservation. If we spend too much time talking about the past, we'll miss our chance to really grab the ring of the future and move forward. The people who held to the point of view that we needed to find new modern forms to live within the new limits of our new life as Osages were people who came from deeply traditional backgrounds. In 1880, some of the tribal leaders visited the Osages' old rivals, the Cherokees, and saw their constitution of 1827. A delegation from the Osage Reservation was sent to study the document carefully and the Osages decided to hold their own constitutional convention. In 1881, their new constitution was signed by 15 signatories. They signed this document, and people agreed that it was doing good things for the Osage nation, that it was helping us to survive in now this very difficult period in which the U.S. government was not welcoming self-determined tribal governments like this, tribal national governments. Robert Warrior reads the preamble to the Osage Constitution of 1881. The Constitution of the Osage Nation, prepared by the authorized committee and adopted by the National Council. The Great and Little Osages, having united and become one body politic, under the style and title of the Osage Nation, therefore. We the people of the Osage Nation, in National Council assembled, in order to establish justice, ensure tranquility, promote the common welfare, and to secure to ourselves and our posterity the blessing of freedom, acknowledging with humility and gratitude the goodness of the sovereign ruler of the universe in permitting us to do so, and imploring his aid and guidance in its accomplishment, to ordain and establish this constitution for the government of the Osage Nation. The constitution proclaimed the Osage Nation's political right to exist. But, says Warrior, not everyone agreed with it as the founding document of the Osage people. Well, we became a people long before 1881, long before this constitution was written, long before we used this Western form to try to formalize ourselves. If you ask the people who really are in touch with the oldest traditions of the tribe, the Osages became a people. We descended from the stars in a time long ago that no one really can point exactly to when that was. But that, in the Osage mind, that's when we became a people. We descended from the stars, and the three groups of people who descended from the stars ran into a fourth group of people who were living in chaos, who were living in a time when they had lost all of their sense of direction. The leaders of the three groups from the stars called this lost people the isolated earth people. And they said, you know, we need to save them from themselves. We need to at least offer them the opportunity of coming with us as we then find a new place to live now that we no longer live in the order of the stars. Here we are on what one Osage writer is called the whimsical earth. This fourth group did join them. And it's that moment then in the traditional mind of people in my tribe as far as I've been able to understand it as a student of our culture, as a student of our traditions, and as a student of our language, that's when we became the Neumkonska. That's when we became the children of the middle waters. That's when we became the little ones 
That's when we became Wishaji. That's when we became the people who came together, the three groups from the stars, the one group living in chaos, learning how to live together, learning how to reach back for the stars. And it's that fundamental tension between the cultural version of it with all of its wonderful nuances of reaching towards the stars, of reaching higher towards an order that the human mind can barely comprehend, but also then the practical reality of needing this formalized relationship, which is part of the 1881 Constitution, that I find fascinating. The Osage Constitution is not perfect by any means, says Warrior, but as he reads it or assigns it to his students, he is engaged in the work of producing an Osage national literature. Where I find the literary value is not so much in the picayune details, but in the fact that this group of people, this group of men who are strongly allied with their wives, their mothers, their aunts, their cousins, and even their nieces and their granddaughters, that really they felt themselves in a moment of deep gravitas as they approached the framing of this constitution. They wanted it to last. I also think, though, that they wanted it to be a document that would not be in opposition to the other version of our constitution as a people that I think is embedded within our story of Osage emergence and Osage origins. They wanted it to be a document that would be alongside that story. That's why I think that they do have this sense of transcendent literary beauty, that in the oral tradition you see people searching for the most beautiful words they can find to tell the story of our emergence as a people. You find the people who wrote this constitution, especially in the preamble, especially at the moments where they're allowed to really use language powerfully, that they bring into it then a sense of this deeply beautiful language because they're writing into the future. They're reaching to the past and they're looking at and reflecting on our life in the stars. I'm Sally Plaxon, and you're listening to What's the Word? American Indian and Alaska Native Tribal Traditions. The Haida Nation is fairly small in comparison to many other tribal peoples. Jean Breinig teaches in the English Department at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. She teaches courses on Alaska Native literatures and American Indian literatures, and is a member of the Haida Nation in Alaska. I was raised in a small village called Kasan, which only has about 40 people living there now, and its height was about 150. And this is one of the two remaining Alaskan Haida villages. There's Kasan and Heidelberg. In 1997, Breinig began work co-editing a book called Alaska Native Writers, Storytellers, and Orators. It's a collection of traditional storytellers and contemporary writers with facing page translations and sections that provide cultural, historical, and political context. The thing that I like about the book is that it really shows the range and diversity of writing and storytelling that's going on in Alaska now. One storyteller included in the book is the late Victor Haldane, who used to tell a story called the Moldy Collar Tip. He told it in the Haida language. 
It's a very well-known story in Haida oral traditions, and there's a lot of different versions of it that exist. And I think the important themes that come through in this are the idea of respect for the natural world, the idea of being generous and grateful, and to remember that humans hold a very small place in the world compared to everything that surrounds us. The story starts with a boy who's turning his nose up at a piece of moldy fish. Brynig reads from the English version. When they lived in Kassan, when they moved to Carta Bay, they went to get salmon. And then they told the children, when they refuse and turn up their noses at the fish, they told them stories, they told them legends. Then they told them traditions concerning fish. A long time ago, a child kept on scorning fish. When it was a little moldy, he would say, Ee, yuck, I don't want it. And then they would say to him, Hey, don't say that. If you keep talking like that, the fish people will do something to you. And in the Haida belief system, every animal had a human counterpart. And so you have sockeye people, which is a kind of a fish, and halibut people, and silver coho salmon people, and they all live in a spirit world, but the spirit world is very close. And the thing about being human is that you can never really be sure if what you're seeing is a human or a fish person. And so the kind of attitude you have to have when you can't really be sure all the time is one of respect. And the story continues, and the boy eventually learns that it's not wise to turn your nose up at fish. And the other thing you have to remember about Haida traditions is that fish is to be respected, especially salmon, because we depend upon it. And you must always be grateful for what you are given. Breinig's mother, Julie Coburn, is another writer represented in the collection. During the 1970s resurgence of ethnic pride, Coburn, then in her 30s, set out to strengthen her knowledge of the Haida language. Several decades later, she started writing in English as well. As a way of preserving stories she wanted her children and grandchildren to know. This piece is entitled Raven Speaks to Haida's. The Haida's say that the raven can say words that the Haida can understand. I only learned a few of the words. Gok, gok, the wind is coming. Gok, gok, a boat is coming. Osh, osh, it sounds like blood squirting. The salmon will be plentiful. Perry, Annie, and I took a boat ride to Kassan Island. We stopped for lunch on a shady beach. I heard a raven say, Gok, gok, as it flew over us. And I told Perry that the raven told me that a boat was coming. We thought nothing of it. Later we stopped at Happy Harbor, and Bratz, our friend's dog, barked, and she said he always barked when a boat was nearby. The boat did not come into Happy Harbor, so we forgot it. About one hour later, we buzzed on back to Kassan, and the first thing we heard was that our friend John McVickers had come to Kassan, looking for us around the bay and around Kassan Island. So the raven was right. He had seen the boat as it came in the bay and told me by the words, Gawk, gawk. I love this piece because people often think that animals don't speak to humans. 
But we always were told that they did. And you can see from this that in some way they do, but we just don't know how to understand them. Haida literature, says Breinig, with its themes of respect, gratitude, and sharing, has much to offer both the Haida people and the world in general. It's important because as Haida people, cultural survival, cultural perpetuation is something that many of us are looking for. And we need to be reminded that these are the kinds of things that can be perpetuated regardless of anything else that goes on. The word Hada, Haida, translates to the people. In Yupik, it means the real people. So oftentimes the names of the tribes are indicating something about what it means to be human. To live your life in a good way is to be a real human. And the stories, all of the native stories, Haida stories included, of course, are ways of being, they're teachings that give us a sense of who we are and how to be in the world, how to perpetuate our cultures, even in English or even in the contemporary world. This edition of What's the Word? American Indian and Alaska Native Tribal Traditions was written, produced, and narrated by Sally Plaxon. Technical Director, Duke Marcos. Production Coordinator, Lee Morgan. Special thanks to Corey Press. For a list of works mentioned on this program, please write The Modern Language Association of America, 26 Broadway, 3rd Floor, New York, New York, 1004 and ask for a copy of the list for program number 69.